Welcome to the first episode of the Briona Society podcast. Tonight's interview is with Jay Dondi. Jay's one of the founders of the Briona Society, and we covered a range of topics, everything from why the San Francisco city budget keeps doubling, even though the population is basically the same, to what Tennessee Williams thought of San Francisco versus Cleveland. It was a lot of fun. Before we get to it, remember to hit that subscribe button on your podcatcher. If you're an Apple, it's a plus sign on the top right part of your screen. If you're using Stitcher, even easier. Button that says subscribe. But remember to subscribe on your podcatcher. We don't want you to miss all of the great episodes coming out over the next couple of weeks and months. With that said, please sit back and enjoy Jay Dondi. What's up, Jay? Welcome to the first episode of the Briona Society podcast. I'm pumped. How are you feeling? I'm pumped too. I'm pumped Great. too. This is very fitting. <laughs> Nothing better to do on a Monday night than discuss San Francisco politics. San Francisco politics never disappoints. That's why I think it's <laughs> Okay, so we should probably get nuts and bolts stuff out of the way. I suspect a lot of people who see Briona Society podcast are wondering, you know, what is a San Francisco Republican? There may be one high school student who saw Briona's Society and is doing a paper <laughs> on obscure historical figures and is hoping we're going to tell him what he needs to get a B. That guy's SOL. Yeah. But, sorry, buddy. <laughs> You're going to yeah, be disappointed. <laughs> I have no sympathy. I did high school without Wikipedia. He can do it without this one. <laughs> we should talk about what Briona's Society is for everyone who's new to the podcast. And if you're new to Briona's Society, welcome. Let's start there. What is the Briona's Society? The Briona Society is a political club uh, started by Republicans in San Francisco, uh, but also moderates, independents, uh, people sort of aligned in the center of the political spectrum. And the idea behind the Briona Society is just that there's this large, underserved and unheard constituency of voters in the city who are primarily motivated by kitchen table issues like good schools, clean streets, safe neighborhoods. And they don't really feel that the left or the right in the city is responsive to those, those concerns and are looking for an alternative. And Brianna Society hopes to be that alternative. Why did you and a few others start it? How do you come to this idea? One of my favorite quotes of all time is, from Tennessee Williams, and he's it's kind of a jokey quote, but he says that um, the United States only has three cities, New York, New Orleans, and San Francisco. Everywhere else is just Cleveland. I just love that, right? Like it's, <laughs> first of all, it's so unfair to everywhere else, but it's got a ring of truth to it. It's just a unique place. And, and personally, you know, as someone that grew up in a lot of different places and moved around a lot as a kid, when you end up settling somewhere, there's kind of that no zealot like a convert mentality, right? Like you you end up really loving the place that you choose to settle down in. And it's, look, there is literally no other city in the country that could weather the problems that we are weathering and have weathered over the last few decades and still be as beautiful and as attractive um, and as hopeful a place uh, as San Francisco is. I agree with that. You know, it's interesting. We were talking before and you mentioned something that i hadn't heard which is that there is no major city in the western united states 
of the, of a comparable size that has sidewalks like San Francisco and is as walkable as San Francisco in that there is no place in the county of San Francisco you cannot walk to. And someone may say, well, you know, why is that important? Uh, maybe for you know, aesthetic reasons. But there are actually deep sociological values at play here. So I'm thinking, did you ever read the book Bowling Alone by Robert Putnam? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay, so the idea being that there are structural things that lead to social cohesiveness, what he calls social uh, capital. And to have a walkable neighborhood that's safe has all sorts of side effects, including that people start to know their neighbors. And when they start to know their neighbors, neighbors, they form clubs and groups. And they start to do the things that lead to social bonds that lead to a happier, healthier society. And this city has that in droves. Like it's, it's worth preserving and it's worth fighting for. And if we could just get out of our own way, there is a lot to be gained. I couldn't agree more, especially that part about public safety, right? Because that's the, I, I, I think it's Patrick Sharkey. It's, it's, there's a sociologist who wrote a book that I really like that talks about the fact that the whole idea of a city is it's a place where people share space. If people feel unsafe in shared spaces, then that's it. That's the, what's the point of a city? Then it's just a bunch of people living in boxes stacked on top of each other. Like you're living in a warehouse. You're not living in a city. And all of the magical things that you just described, the things that are so important, not just for the health of, of a city, but also the health of a country, right? Like the, the sort of social cohesion, the diversity, the... Um, uh, the development of new ideas and social and political movements, none of that can occur if everyone's too afraid to go outside. And it's extremely, it's such privileged thinking to be dismissive of people's public safety concerns, right? Like you and I are tall, 170, 180 pound plus white dudes and for the most part, right? There's obviously places in the city that are kind of dangerous. For the most part, we walk around and don't worry a lot about our physical safety. Well, guess what? We don't represent that much of the population. And it's a lot different for a lot of people. And um, it's just funny to me that the left is unwilling to acknowledge that uh, and acknowledge the impact that it has on on social bonds and people's ability to, to go out and enjoy the city the way it's meant to be enjoyed. But it seems like voters have been feeling around in the dark for a way to send that message. And they've started at the polls the last couple cycles, certainly. I think it has been a very good year for moderates in San Francisco. I hope that we will continue that trend. And I'm hoping that Republicans especially can capitalize on that energy. That begs an important question. There's undoubtedly energy in this direction right now, but it's been years since a Republican has won even a supervisor seat in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. How does a Republican win in San Francisco in 2022 or beyond? That's a difficult question. It's one that I admit we are trying to figure out as we go along. I think that the first thing you have to do is recognize that there's a great opportunity for conservatives in cities across America, but especially in San Francisco, because so many of these places have been dominated by one-party rule for so long. And the results, especially in SF, sort of speak for themselves. People are not happy with the state of the city. 
one of the major newspapers in San Francisco, The Standard, came out with a poll a few months ago that was uh, pretty dismal in what it showed with respect to San Francisco voters' opinion about basic city services, administration, government, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that there's uh, an opportunity here despite the fact that Republicans have for so long been marginalized in city politics, to draw a clear contrast between what a city looks like under a Democratic administration and what it would look like under a Republican administration. And the thing that I like to say is that if you were to have more Republicans in office, you would more likely have a government that does you know, a few big things very well, rather than a lot of small things poorly, which is kind of what we have now. A Republican administration or a center-right administration or even a centrist administration, I think, would focus more on the core competencies of government, which are, in my opinion, public safety, a social safety net, um, and providing those types of public goods that um, the private sector cannot provide. San Francisco is a weird case in this way. (laughs) Well, it's a weird case in a lot of ways, in a lot of really good, lovable ways, but this is the one that comes to mind. On paper, this city should have very few problems. In 2009, we had a budget of $6.5 billion, roughly. Last month, London Breed, the mayor, uh, introduced a budget that was just shy of $14 billion, so more than twice as much in just over a decade. The population of San Francisco has been essentially flat, so it's not a money issue. We've doubled our money, even though we have the same amount of people. It's not a gridlock issue because every member of the Board of Supervisors is a Democrat, and you know there are different factions within the Board of Supervisors within Democrats, but there should be a lot of commonality there. If there's no gridlock and there's been twice as much money for the same number of people, what's going wrong and how do you fix that if you're the Republican Party? Well... I mean, first of all, those $20,000 trash cans aren't going to pay for themselves, right? (laughs) So that's how we get to a $14 billion city budget. Yeah. So, I mean, you're absolutely right. Even if you go a little bit further back and you do sort of a 20-year retrospective, you'll see that the population of the city has grown by maybe 5%, between 5 and 10%. But city spending on a per capita basis has uh, increased at almost twice the rate of inflation. So something has gone awry here. Um, And in my view, it's largely the result of a lack of government oversight, which is going to sound surprising to a lot of people, because um, if you are even cursorily familiar with San Francisco city government, you'll know that we have something like uh, you know, o- we have over a hundred commissions, committees, task forces, etc., that are uh, responsible in some form or another for providing oversight over their little fiefdom, and all of those bodies are supplemented by um, there's a city controller that r- has a city services auditor. Uh, there's the district attorney, obviously the city attorney. Uh, we have an ethics commission. We have an elections committee. It just goes on and on and on and on. And it would seem as if we have uh, actually quite a bit of government oversight in the city. But the reality is, is that none of those bodies are independent from the agencies or departments that they're supposed to be overseeing, which is kind of hilarious because 
if you think about it, that's sort of the absolute necessity for having effective oversight. You know, you talk to any sort of auditing organization in the private sector, much less the public sector, and they'll say, yeah, I mean, if you don't have independence uh, of oversight, then you don't really have true oversight at all. And what's happened is that these bodies have largely become just political attack dogs for their respective factional sponsors. So I think that we could have a lot more um, efficient and responsive and effective government if we had a truly independent oversight body in the city. And by the way, that's not it would it would it, it would not be unusual for us to have that. In fact, it would put us in the company of the vast majority of California counties, the largest California counties, uh, I think the majority of them, uh, 15 out of the 20 largest counties, all have some sort of elected independent city auditor or city controller. And the same thing is true at the state level. The majority of U.S. states have elected uh, oversight agencies or offices, including California. We have we have a, a state auditor, which reports to the governor, but we also have a, a state controller, uh, which is independently elected and obviously independent of any agencies that it might oversee. Can we affect that change without either a moderate or Republican majority on the Board of Supervisors? One of the nice things and, and not so nice things about living in San Francisco and the state of California is that we have this initiative system where everyday citizens can put measures on the ballot. They don't have to wait for the Board of Supervisors to do so. Uh, they don't have to wait for the Board of Supervisors to pass an ordinance or a charter amendment. They don't have to wait for the legislature to, uh, to pass laws. Everyday citizens can get together organize, uh, gather uh, a prescribed number of signatures. It varies depending on the type of law that you want to pass, but um, it's it's feasible, it's within reach. Uh, and you'll actually you will actually see a few of those uh, on the ballot this November. Um, I say that it's it's one of the nice things and one of the not so nice things because um, with, on the one hand, this was a progressive reform, right? This is something that has existed in the state of California for a very long time. And it was an initially conceived as a uh, way of pushing back against machine politics by uh, a progressive movement in the state. The thing that makes it not so nice is that it's often, you know, abused. It can lead to what California voters are now familiar with, which is ballots that are five, six, seven pages long. And so um, it it demands that voters become engaged and educate themselves and really take an uh, active role in uh, in the political process. Is this a mechanism to do something about homelessness in San Francisco? I ask because homelessness seems to be one where at least People pay lip service to wanting to do something across the political spectrum, but seems to just elude everyone year after year after year. One thing to note that's very interesting and surprise a lot of people is that San Francisco does not have material or significantly more homeless people than a number of cities uh, on the East Coast that, by all lights, appear much less afflicted with this problem. The difference is that San Francisco has way more unhoused homeless people. So New York City has 
a large population of homeless people. Boston has a large population of homeless people, but almost all of them are sheltered. Uh, New York in particular uh, has a right to shelter law at the state level, which requires the city and the New York City to, to provide shelter beds for homeless people. San Francisco doesn't have that. And one of the problems that we have run into is that San Francisco kind of operates under a similar regime because there is a uh, judicial ruling that basically says that you are not allowed to remove a homeless person from the street unless you can offer to that person uh, a shelter bed. There are some caveats and some nuances to that, but that's basically the idea. So that's how we end up with a situation where there's a ton of homeless people on the street um, and they can't be moved anywhere. Well, but that that sort of asks, well, why don't we just build the shelters that we have to, right? And, you know, there's a lot of different theories about why that particular approach hasn't been pursued. I think that you don't have to be too much of a conspiracy theorist to notice that we have a lot of nonprofit organizations in the city who have a uh, vested interest, it seems, in the perpetuation of the very problem that they are organizationally dedicated to solving. You know, if homelessness went away tomorrow, let's just say that there would be a lot of people in San Francisco out of a job. And a cynical person might look at that and say, well, they don't necessarily want to lose the funding that they get from the municipal government uh, that would um, attend to the solution of this problem. And so what they do is they erect a number of barriers to, to prevent it from being solved. And one of those barriers is to say, look, shelters especially congregate shelters, meaning sort of the stereotypical homeless shelter that we all think of uh, when we, you know, I guess, uh, recall whatever movies we've seen about this topic, are inhumane and insufficient and um, should not be used to solve the problem, despite the fact that they're, you know, pretty, um, pretty regular use around the country and around the world. Um, they'll say, no, you have to build permanent supportive housing, which basically means you have to buy an apartment for every homeless person in San Francisco. Obviously, that's prohibitively expensive. And by prohibitively expensive, I mean like it costs somewhere on in the, in the range of $700,000 uh, per unit uh, in San Francisco to house a person. So it, it would be like an order of magnitude higher than what we would be able to afford given the current um, uh, housing and human services budget in the city. Um, at the same time, you know, the, the, the idea then is, well, um, well, it, it's compassionate rather to just let them continue living on the street. So that's kind of the, the, I guess, setting the table for why we have the homelessness problem that we do have in the city. Can we do something about it? Yes, I think we absolutely can. And I absolutely think that doing something about it via a charter amendment or an ordinance that is put on the ballot by the voters uh, is not only uh, feasible, it's desirable. What's an example? So there is right now a proposal by one of the supervisors in the city, Rafael Mandelman is the supervisor for District 8, to provide 
shelter beds. It, they don't have to necessarily be permanent supportive housing. If they are, great. But if they're not, that's okay too. Every single homeless person in the city of San Francisco. That is a good start, I would say. What he has proposed and what has actually passed and been you know, made into law by the Board of Supervisors has some flaws. One of those flaws is that there's a three-year time horizon for this. So basically the law says that Yes, you have to provide shelters for every homeless person in the city, but you don't have to do, you know, you, you don't have to reach that finish line for three years. Okay, that's sort of understandable because it's a big problem. It's going to take some time to solve, but there's no milestones along the way. The other problem is that when an initiative is passed on the ballot, uh, so that basically when when the voters put something on the ballot and then they then they pass it, that law cannot be repealed unless it is done so by the voters themselves. That's not the case with a law that's passed by the Board of Supervisors. The Board of Supervisors can pass an ordinance on Sunday and then change its mind and and, and invalidate that ordinance on Monday. So let me stop you there. How does that play into the 36-month horizon in this particular piece of legislation? What I am concerned about is that, especially given the fact that there are no milestones that have to be hit along the way, that the Board of Supervisors will essentially do absolutely nothing to meet this goal for 35 months. And then uh, come 35 months and 29 days, they'll say, you know, we're not going to be able to meet this. We're not going to be able to, to, to meet this goal. Let's just repeal the law. And then we're back to square one. And in fact, we've lost three years uh, having uh, relied upon uh this approach. If instead this was passed by the voters, if it was an initiative on the ballot passed by the voters, it would be something that the board could not simply invalidate. They would have to abide by it unless they put something else on the ballot that the voters would choose to to invalidate the law. San Francisco is not the only city wrestling with homelessness. Obviously, another city wrestling with this is Los Angeles, and there's a proposal that's pending before the city council there. Uh, to not only introduce metrics along the way to ensure that shelters being built brought online, but also pegging compensation for counselors to hitting yeah. those targets. What do you think about that? Do, can we bring in metrics in San Francisco that are similar in nature that require some skin in the game for the people in charge? I would love that, right? I think that um, some people feel like that is a, um, a radical step, an extreme measure. My response to that is, well, we have in a an extreme problem on our hands. Um, not all the the homelessness that we're seeing in San Francisco, um, especially over the last three or four years, is of a particularly pernicious type. And and I don't I don't just mean pernicious with respect to the impact that it has on surrounding communities, right? Like I don't dismiss the um, concerns and the struggles of families who live in, for example, the Tenderloin, having to walk their kids to school past needles, past human feces, et cetera, et cetera. But even more so, this is pernicious towards homeless people themselves because so much of homelessness in the city, and there's a lot of debate around this, whether, you know, whether it's 
all of homelessness or most of homelessness or some of homelessness, I think we can all agree that a significant amount of homelessness in the city is driven by behavioral and mental health issues and drug addiction. And we are losing in 2021, I think it was something like 700 plus people uh, that year to drug overdoses. I don't think that the rate has come down significantly in 2022. And that's with Narcan. That's what people have to remember is that if we didn't have Narcan, I mean, we really are facing an epidemic that dwarfs the impact of COVID. And if we were willing to take really extreme measures to contain the spread of COVID, we should have the same, we should act to the same level of urgency to combat homelessness and drug addiction and mental health issues. There has been a saying forever in politics that all politics is local. And in recent years, it feels like that's given way to the mantra that all politics is national. How does the Republican Party succeed in San Francisco with the National Republican Party in the background? Very good question. It gives me an opportunity to use one of my favorite words, which is shibboleth. (laughs) (laughs) You probably heard me use the term before. Basically, it just means like a a code word, uh, identifying you as uh, speaking the same language or being of the same tribe. There are a lot of people who would say, yes, I 100% agree with center-right policies when it comes to public safety, right? Like that's a pretty easy one because most of the left has decided to ignore public safety entirely. So just even saying something at all about it puts you a step ahead. Um, They agree with uh, center-right policies about, um, you know, the delivery of public services, transparency in government, quality public education, et cetera, et cetera. But then they look at what is happening in the Republican Party at the national, even at the state level, and they are so turned off by it. And they're so turned off by it to the point that they won't even sit down and hear any of your ideas and discuss any of your policy proposals about local issues until you opine on what's happening at the national level. So you have to speak those shibboleths first before people will open their ears to you and hear what you have to say about, again, those sort of kitchen table concerns that are motivating so many San Franciscans. Personally, my feelings about this and my philosophy about this have evolved. When Briona's Society first started, our intention was to focus exclusively on local issues and sort of ignore the noise. I think that we have found that that is simply not possible. And, and I understand, you know, I, 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 can, I can understand why people demand to hear what your views are on some of these um, particularly social issues that are being discussed at the national level, uh, because they're, it, it, a, a lot of them are issues of ethical and moral concern, and they want to know that the person that they're having a conversation with has the same values that they do. Um, that's a challenge, right? Like you never want to, it's, it's always hard to criticize your own side. You always end up making, uh, you always end up uh, engendering hard feelings among people you consider your friends. 
but I think that uh, kind of to borrow a hackneyed political phrase, true friends tell each other the truth, whether that means praising or criticizing. San Francisco's role in the country has always been to imagine America's future, be that in medicine, art, certainly technology. We're the ones that see over the horizon for the rest of the country. We're, we're the pioneers. Today, 39% of Americans, according to a recent Economist poll, think that a third political party is not only a good idea, it's absolutely necessary. And more than half think that they're at least open to it. So do you think that San Francisco can do for the rest of the country in politics what it has done in all those areas? Can it devise a third party or perhaps reimagine what the Republican Party could be? I think that that's exactly right. We are we like to th- we are and we like to think of ourselves as a city of innovators. We are creative. We are not um, beholden to the past. Uh, in this case, I, ironically, I almost think that the types of things that you would say uh, to criticize the national or the state Republican Party are not new, right? They, if anything, they are a return to core fundamental Republican principles. That's I, I, a lot of people consider being called a rhino, for example, a Republican in name only or a squishy Republican. They consider it an insult. I kind of laugh at it because to me, it's hilarious, right? Like so much of what um, we see uh, outside of outside of San Francisco and the Republican Party, which is this growing embrace of, of nationalism and authoritarianism, uh, a growing embrace of sort of a uh, willingness to radically change existing institutions and processes, an embrace of dictators and authoritarian regimes abroad. To me, it's completely foreign to the fusionist Republican Party that I've always been familiar with, right? That it sort of took a strand of libertarianism, a strand of of Burkeanism, um, a, a, a social kind of religious conservatism, and a, a strong foreign policy and fuse those together to make the modern GOP. America has always been a forward-looking country. We've all said this for so long. We've all been taught it growing up. We are the people who forged west until we hit the ocean. And when we hit the ocean, we looked up and set our eyes on the stars. You know, I, I think back to as recently as the middle of the last century when, a, when New York hosted its World Fair. You know, the theme was the world of tomorrow. This was always a country who thought its best days were ahead and wanted to know what was just over the, the horizon. This is a, a country that is focused on the future. And that's why it's so weird when I look at today's politics on both sides, the left and the right. You know, be it uh, a longing for days gone by and, and strong nationalism on the right, or a longing for past union strength on the left. There's something about this fetishizing the past that seems distinctly un-American and, and an odd fit for who we are. What do you think? I'm so happy you mentioned that because it gives me an opportunity to dunk on Democrats just a little bit. Do it. And, uh, <laughs> What you will see in a lot of the upper echelons of 
democratic policy circles and the the think pieces that are being written in the New York Times and similar publications it, uh, over the last year is this term they're calling it supply side liberalism or the abundance agenda um and basically it's just sounds like a side. diet where you eat butter <laughs> it's basically just um Democrats realizing that the fundamental insights of supply-side economics that were embraced by Republicans 30, 40 years ago are correct. Now, Republicans kind of went overboard, went astray by um, misunderstanding that or maybe oversimplifying it into this notion of, well, you just cut taxes and, uh, you know, step one, cut taxes, step two question mark, step three, profit. It doesn't really work like that. But the fundamental insight being that, um, you know, rather than try to uh, obsess over whether every single person has an exactly equal slice of the pie, let's focus on making the pie bigger. And what's wonderful about making the pie bigger isn't just that there's more stuff. It's that not, there's more stuff plus everything gets cheaper because everything is out there in abundance. And um, I'm heartened uh, to see that the consensus has has fallen on um, on this and, and Democrats are starting to embrace this uh, as their new um, their new approach to economics. You'll see, for example, um, Ezra Klein talking about it. You'll see a variety of other pundits who, who are talking about it and embracing it. And it just goes to show you also that sort of in politics, um, everything new, uh, everything old is new again and then just gets recycled, right? Like the 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 supply-side liberals are the former neoliberals who then who were Rockefeller Republicans who were progressive Republicans before that. And it's just kind of everything kind of gets recycled and rebranded every 20 or 30 years. So let's, let's bring it back local. Uh, we started off our conversation by mentioning that as, as we record this, we're a few weeks out from the Boudin recall. Uh, I think everyone in San Francisco is pretty familiar with it, but uh, in brief, uh, District Attorney Chase Boudin was recalled by a margin of just under 60% to 40%. Uh, where does that leave us with elections coming up in November? What do you see on the horizon here? So I'm hoping that we will continue uh, what has been a trend of positive developments in San Francisco politics this year. Uh, it started out with the recall of the three Board of Education commissioners in February, uh, continued with, um, you know, maybe this wasn't the, the most satisfying win, but I certainly was ha happier having Matt Haney, for example, uh, go to the assembly over David Campos, uh, continued after that with um, what I think was generally speaking a win for the moderates in redistricting, uh, which was uh, a heated, uh, very unpleasant battle for anyone who even took who took part in it, even uh, peripherally. Um, and then, sort of, we saw the crowning achievement thus far in the recall of Chesa Boudin in June. Um, in November, there 
is an opportunity not only to solidify those gains, right? Uh, Brooke Jenkins, who was appointed to replace Chesa Boudin, is going to be on the ballot again to be elected in her own right as the district attorney. Uh, the three Board of Education commissioners who were appointed to replace the recalled commissioners are also on the ballot running this uh, this November. Um, but also to, to, to make gains, right? Um, we have the even-numbered supervisorial districts on the ballot this year. In District 2, uh, there's already a moderate in that seat, Catherine Stephanie. District 4 is a really interesting race. You have Gordon Marr uh, running uh, essentially as the progressive candidate, one might say, against two moderates. And those two moderates, if they're able to work together and not necessarily steal votes from one another, um, should trounce him handily. I mean, he took positions that were diametrically opposed to the opinions of his constituents. He was against the school board recall. He was against the Chesa Boudin recall. Um, and his opponents, uh, Joel Ingardio and Leanna Louis, were obviously both heavily identified with both of those campaigns. Uh, District 6, you have um, uh, a really interesting race because the, the, the lines of the district have been redrawn in such a way to make it much more favorable to moderates. Um, you have Matt Dorsey running against Honey Mahogany. Um, you know, Matt Dorsey is probably the more moderate of the two candidates, but it's <laughs> it's kind of funny in San Francisco, a gay man who is open about his past struggles with drugs <laughs> is considered a, you know, a, a, a reactionary fascist just because he doesn't think that, um, you know, people should be able to uh, traffic large amounts of fentanyl without consequence. District 8, uh, Rafael Mandelman is kind of, you know, maybe on any given day might be a moderate, might be a progressive, but generally one of the, he's not the worst of the board of supervisors. And then district 10, uh, Shimon Walton's probably going to get reelected. But right now we have, uh, it's an under, it's an understatement to call it a super majority of progressives on the board of supervisors. It's like 10 out of 11 or it was 10 out of 11 before this year. Um, and we have an opportunity to, to change that balance, to make it six, five, maybe four, seven, um, and really set up the 2024 election where there's a lot of vulnerable progressive seats. Absolutely horrible, horrible candidates who are, are really sliding in the polls and do not have favorable structural environment for, uh, in 2024, given the redistricting, there's an opportunity to unseat them and, and potentially get, you know, eight, three, moderates on the board of supervisors and if you can do that and you have a moderate mayor i am very optimistic about what the city of san francisco will be and will look like in the next five years normies took a vacation from history for 20 years and i think a lot of them woke up in 2019 and looked around and thought, what the hell happened to my city? Well, what happened to your city is that you can't just parachute into politics every four years, fill out a ballot, and think you've done your civic duty. That's just not the way democracy works. You have to volunteer. You have to join a political club. You have to engage. You have to advocate. And there's this weird uh, notion, especially among those on the right, that we, you know, we don't want 
higher voter participation because higher voter participation favors progressives or people. On, I haven't found that to be the case. It, in my opinion, the more participation you have among voters and the more engagement you have among voters, the more likely you are to turn out those normies. And you know, it, it's interesting. I was thinking my favorite response thus far from a person we both know involved in the Briona Society, but or San Francisco Republican. You know, I asked, why are you a San Francisco Republican? And the response was, because I'm a liberal person. It sounds totally <laughs> contradictory. But if you drill down, there's more to it. And the answer was, I'm a liberal person. I believe in the rule of law. I believe in science. I believe in economics. I believe in civil liberties and civil rights. And those historically have been the core principles of the party of Lincoln, you know, clean government. Um, you know, night watchman kind of government that you're there to let people be, but at the same time, protect those who can't protect themselves. Those are values that are worth defending. And in this political landscape in San Francisco, circa 2022, that's what's on the ballot. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I think there's something really worthwhile in taking a stand for those things. I, I mean, I, I couldn't agree with you more. The, the sort of basic ideas that are, are um, advanced by conservatives, at least common sense or consensus conservatives. Again, public safety, having a reasonable social safety net, the efficient and transparent provision of public goods, those are not those are not right wing. Those are not left wing. That's just good governance, right? And mm -hmm. that's that. That's the origin of the Republican Party. It wasn't about shrinking government. It's not about getting rid of government altogether. It's not about anarchy. It's not about you know this sort of ex extreme libertarianism. It's about let's just have a government that works and be modest about what it can accomplish, and make sure it gets the basics right, and then we can move on to the other things. <laughs> <laughs> 